Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guests today are Adam Lucas and James Everingham. Both Adam and James are composers based out of Los Angeles, working at Hans Zimmer's Composers Collective, known as Bleeding Fingers Music. Adam and James have worked on tons of film and TV projects over their careers and have recently written the music for the documentary Frozen Planet 2 alongside Hans Zimmer. In this interview, we talk about how there's quite a lot of opportunity for film composers and how you have to be willing to look for it, why each of these composers decided to not go it alone and instead work inside of a composer's collective and work together, working on insanely short timelines, especially in Hollywood, what to do if you're not one of the lucky few working and living in Los Angeles already, and so much more. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Adam Lucas and James Everingham. So first question, this goes to, you know, both of you, but let's start with James just to make it easier, just so, you know, you know who's going to talk first. But there's this common belief in the world of music composition or any sort of art that you're either, you know, composing for James Bond or nothing else. Like it's basically you're at the top or there's no work in between, but there's so much other stuff out there. Like you two worked on Frozen Planet 2, which is a huge like documentary series. So can you talk to how you found yourself working on this big kind of documentary series and what sorts of worlds there are in the world of composition that are other than just film and video games are kind of the two things that only people talk about. That's a that's a really good question and and something that I've sort of thought about a lot. And for me, in a way, it's the same thing. E even though that you know have different mediums, you have film, TV, video games. To me, w where I find the greatest joy in my work is just finding some kind of story or some heart to a project that needs to be enhanced with music. To give you an example, something that Hans taught me was to ask your director or your producer to explain the project, but without referring to the specifics of the project. So I did a, a show back in, in 2019, a film for National Geographic called Apollo Missions to the Moon. And that was about, forget about the launches, the technical achievements, the the specifics of like launching a rocket and going to the moon. What do these missions mean for future generations, young children looking up at the stars? And then it becomes not a science documentary, right? just a story about the innate human desire to explore the unknown. That's, I guess, a long-winded, pretentious way of saying it's less about the specifics of the individual project, but more about storytelling and emotion behind it and the core of it. I think what you said is very interesting. So it's either James Bond or nothing. But there's so much cool stuff in between. When I was working in Vienna before I came here to L.A., I was working with the film students of our film academy and doing short films. And sometimes those went really deep, like those were really fun to work on. And it's by far not a James Bond, but it's also not a foolish ambition. Like it's proper short films that tell really unique stories. And to be honest, I kind of miss that. 
it's amazing to get to work on Frozen Planet 2 or Primates or Being the Queen, but there's a lot of young, ambitious directors out there who also create great film. And I think these stories need a place as well. In a similar way to, to sort of music as well, you know, you have like full orchestral expensive music and music that's recorded on a single upright piano and both sort of have yeah. that emotional aspect, but in very different ways and with very different scales to them. Yeah. And what's so interesting is you you mentioned, you know, these like young kind of directors that you can work with and they're all over the world. Neither of you are from LA. Neither of you were born there. You're not even from the US. Can you talk about that experience? We'll start with you, Adam. Like how did that coming to LA experience work? Was it something that when you were three years old, you knew it was something you were going to do or did it come much later? How did that kind of build, build to this? I come from a really small like village sort of town in Austria and you know, a countryside and and I may, I moved to Vienna to study and from this village to Vienna Vienna has a population of like 2 million was absolutely overwhelming it was like wow this is a completely different world and you know for a young 18 year old Adam maybe a little too much in the first few weeks you know don't, that, then it got a lot of fun but from Vienna to LA overwhelming in a different sort of way it wasn't that much bigger but I was aware that I'm now entering the absolute capital of entertainment and capital of film music and competition will be tough. And there's a lot of people out there like me try to make it. So I think there's this question around the composer bubble. Do I have to live in LA to make it work? And I don't think you have to, but being here, there's a lot of mixers. There's a lot of events you can attend. There's, you're going to make friendships for life. You're going to meet people that you might have to do with your whole life. It's a very vibrant place. It took me a long time, but I learned to love LA. And I think I'm going to stay here for some time longer before I move back and start a farm in Austria. How was it for you? Similar in a way. I mean, I, I grew up in the West of England, not sort of in the countryside like you did, but strangely enough in Bristol, which is the headquarters of the BBC Natural History Unit. So in a way, Frozen Planet 2 has been a strange sort of thing to go so far from home and yet work on a project that feels very close to home in that sense. Yeah. As a child, I spent a lot of time in London where my grandparents lived. And so the big city aspect of moving to LA wasn't that much of a shock for yeah. me either. For some people I know, it, it's such a, a culture shock, particularly from sort of rural Europe come out here. But it's a lot of houses. It's not high. You go to... New York, and you kind of walk around like this, and your neck's getting. Yeah, like and it's really more bad. claustrophobic. I feel. Yeah, yeah, claustrophobic. That's the word exactly. And and LA is very broad, and it feels like an eternal suburbs. I mean, there's downtown and stuff, but it's cozy. And we live in our little microcosm here. You know, our studio is on 14th Street, and we live close. We cycle to work. Sometimes I would come to work, and I see him cycling, and then oh, and then we cycle together. You can make it work. Nice. I love it. I love it. And now I want to start talking about, you know, creative process and collaboration and all that good stuff, because you two collaborate with each other. You collaborate with other composers at Bleeding Fingers. You have so many different layers of working with other composers and other musicians. So let's start really broad before we get into the specifics. How did you two start collaborating with each other? And what's that process look like? Because I doubt it's both of you saying like, all right, I'm going to write a C sharp. Okay, now I'll write an E. Like, I doubt it's that. So what does that back and forth look like with each other? Sometimes it is like that, I would say. Yeah. 
to rewind a little bit, I've always said that there's times when as a musician, maybe you've experienced this as well, you call a friend, you want to come over and write some music? They come over and then you're kind of like, oh, it's not really working out. And then it's kind of awkward and like, you don't know how to finish it. And it's kind of, it's not vibing. And so I feel very lucky that we have managed to have a musical synergy where on, on Frozen Planet, there were so many days where, or nights even, where we would be here sort of at 2 a.m. And we both sort of had the instinct for what needed to come next. And there were definitely days where I would write a few bars and then I'd kind of hit a stump and then it would go over to Adam's room next door and he would try some stuff and maybe Hans would try some stuff. And it all kind of comes together into this sort of cauldron of, of Frozen Planet at the end of the day. It's not always like that just the way creativity works in different personalities it's not you're not always lucky enough to have that synergy and so we've i think you would agree that we felt very much in sync musically oh, which ab- is so yeah. important and, and i think a reason why we were so in sync is that there was one moment i was really scared of and that was the first time writing music like sit mm-hmm. down on the piano and actually write a melody or write some chords. And I, this was very daunting to me. And I tried to like pu- kind of push it. Well, particularly since we we uh, first heard about the project at the end of 2019. Yeah. And um, then we don't get footage until... A year later. twenty No, longer, like end of 2021. Yeah, even? something like that. So there's yeah. a lot of waiting and conceptualizing. And then finally the moment comes to write the first... Yeah, but, but that's what we did. We talked a lot. And then... Mm. The fear of writing this first melody got less and less the more we came up with sounds. We came up with, oh, let's not use these instruments. Like we also excluded some stuff deliberately. So we also, we talk about what to include, what not to include. And then I just wrote the melody. It was not so frightful after all. It was like hours of worrying um, for yeah. nothing. <laughs> but yeah, the, the talking helps and the conceptualizing with the three of us and Russell, the producer, the score producer. It's a lot of conversation with the client as well. So you never feel like alone in this, which kind of gives a feeling of comfort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And can you talk to me about those conversations, let's say with Hans at first, what sorts of things do you talk about? Like, is it super broad? Is it super narrow? Do you bounce between? How do you kind of generate ideas with each other with a bunch of musicians in the room who may have their own ideas? I would say it's from broad to narrow. And a challenge we try to overcome is what is the sound of Frozen Planet 2? And we found inspiration in like we looked at ice and like snowflakes and, and ice flow, like how they would fracture and splinter. And that kind of sparked the idea to create a toolkit for us to score. That turned out to be the fractured strings that we did with Spitfire Audio. And that sort of became our home base. So these were like early concepts that we kind of converted visuals to music, if that makes sense. Mm. And that, that was a big help. And once we got that tool, we were really confident in, in, oh, this is the sound. And then you put Aurora on top, you know, our featured artist and singer, and it becomes magic. Yeah, yeah th- those were the, the early concepts. And also something that we talked about is how the vast variety of this frozen world, a fifth of our world is frozen. And it can be like, a fragile snowflake and a, a an avalanche, right? These are very different things. So the concept of extremes were, was important to us. Yeah, you have the, those are the kind of broader concepts that, that we spoke about early on. But you're right that we did also go 
right down to the sort of much narrower stuff where we're all sat in a room and we have the sessions open and it's 3am and maybe one of us is feeling it and the other one isn't, but you're saying, mute that, try that. And I'm like, oh, is it going to work? And then you try it and it's like, oh, that was such a good idea. So definitely playing off all of our strengths and using that to sort of come up with the best combination and this sort of most complex result, I guess, or the most simple result, if, if that's kind of, yeah. you know, what one of us is able to offer more than the other in certain scenarios. And can you talk to in uh, maybe for Frozen Planet 2 specifically, like any sort of roadblocks where, you know, maybe you tried an idea for a while and it just didn't pan out, you know, because that happens on basically every project where it's like, well, maybe this isn't it. Oh, but this is it. Can you talk to that? Or maybe you went down a road for too long, or maybe it was the sort of thing where a mistake turned into like a nice, fortunate thing that you never expected. Um, to me, where I spent most of my time is we have 12 notes at our disposal, like from C to C, sort of, right? And we composers, we learn our craft. So for example, I know A major to F major sounds very heroic. And if time is short, I can rely on these. D minor to F sharp minor is very spooky. So these are sort of musical cliches, and sometimes you rely on them, but it's to us, we spent a lot of time talking how to give it an amazing sound. So we, for example, nothing wrong with using these chords, but what is the character of it? And mm. is it like, I see like low strings or is it synth or is it a brass? And that is a challenge that we, we constantly try to overcome is let's bring something new to the table. And while still satisfying people's expectations in a series like Frozen Planet 2, you, you want to have the sweeping melodies and the epic chords. It needs to be there, but we need to bring something new to the table. And I think we put a lot of effort in that. I, people are should be the judge if, if we manage to do that. Uh, if someone's reaching out and say, hey, this is a score that I've kind of never heard before, that's the biggest compliment we can receive because that's what we work the hardest on. Yeah, that's very cool. You also worked with Aurora, an amazing vocalist. She's so, so good. Can you talk to me about that process? Because, you know, it's not like they're, she's like also composing with you or is she? Like, how did that go back and forth with her? I will say, for, you know, firstly, the incredible thing about Aurora is her back catalog of work is just incredible. And we spent a lot of time before we started composing, just immersing ourselves in that and coming to this sort of real appreciation of her, her sonic fingerprint. And so she was a huge inspiration for the music that we composed. But she's, I mean, she's the most wonderful human being and yeah. just a delight to work with. And we, you know, we, some of the recording process, she was on, on tour and some, she was in Norway. I think maybe we still had lockdowns at the start of production. So she was recording from her, her kitchen <laughs> as well as in-person recordings here in LA. So yeah, it was it was such a wonderful experience to work with her. And what we really tried to achieve with her was instead of her being this sort of washed out cinematic vocalist that is somewhere at the back of the mix, we wanted her to be this kind of, and it sounds pretentious, but to be a reflection of humanity in the music, to be the bridge between the kind of slightly alien synthesizers and the big orchestras and the footage that you're seeing and to when we're talking about the climate crisis and that kind of thing to be this thing where you can hear a human singing as you're seeing the polar bears 
drifting on the ice and all, and all that stuff. And we were very careful not to over-process her voice. Like, we try to avoid this cinematic, reverberated humming. Oftentimes you would hear her, only her, quite dry and just her harmonizing. And yeah, I think that really paid off. Her range is just so so wide as well. And yeah, we had her screaming, whispering. Yeah. It's back to the concept of extremes, right? So this is reflected in her voice in some ways. So she could produce the most intimate of sounds and, and even without tone, it's just breath. And then she could scream that your bones sort of vibrate. And that was really fascinating. You know, it's not every day you get to work with a musician of such caliber. It's just, you're sort of in awe. Our main instrument is the computer, I guess. And of course we perform and we write, but there's something about people whose passion is just to perform and sing or play. And, and we have a lot of amazing solo artists on the album. We have my brother Thomas on guitar. He's playing anything like sort of stringed instruments. We have Veronika Vitatskova on flutes. We have Lara Somogi on, on the harp. And I've probably forgot someone. Uh, Chris Coleman, amazing cellist. I think this is really what makes the score special. I love it. You just hit on something uh, really kind of true for a lot of composers where the computer is kind of where you're at most of the time. That's where, you're, that's where you're living. And you said something earlier where you made the sample library Fractured Strings as kind of a tool set for the core of the score, really. Can you talk to making these sample libraries? Because I know, James, you worked on, you did the organ for the Royal Albert Hall, and you also did Fractured Strings together. There's so much that goes into a sample library. You just you don't just record some violins and leave. You have to get so much detail. Can you talk to how that works, the logistics, how you direct these musicians to have to play these things over and over? I can't imagine it's always these sweeping melodies that you're asking them to play. It's like note by note and getting all that. So can you talk to that? Spitfire are sort of the best in the, in the business when it comes to this, these kinds of sounds. And so it, it started with a with a concept, which is you know what Adam talked about earlier the the idea of ice blooming and splintering and the extremes of that from snowflakes to avalanches for example and so we went to spitfire and we sat with manuscript paper and we sketched ideas all the way through to to sitting in the hall at air studios in london with the best string players in london and, and we were lucky to be able to work with the players in real time you know often when you have a recording session you have sheet music on the stands and it's okay we've got like what 30 cues to get through today let's go as fast as possible yeah do we need a safety tech let's move on with these sessions even though it was what like two in the morning for us yeah we were very lucky to be able to just sculpt the players almost as if they were like an organic synthesizer to to shape the sound dynamically but also the tone do we want some players playing harmonic or solpon or maybe the first chair a bit louder, a bit quieter, and balancing it out and really dialing in on a note-by-note basis sounds that we felt would be a useful and toolkit. Our part was the conceptualizing with Paul. We talked with Paul and he basically jotted down some ideas on like a notepad and we, we still have it like printed out. You can't see it, but it's, it's hanging on the wall here. And the technical side, they know the technical aspect of it. Spitfire takes care of that. Our role was more, as James said, working with the musicians, being part of the recordings and mm. 
directing them and work on early concepts of the libraries. And then we can just relax, sit back, and then they send patches and it was like Christmas. <laughs> nice. And when you get, you know, you get these patches back, you're working with them. What are you kind of listening for or looking for? Are you writing with those tools first to see how they inspire you and then writing around them? Because, you know, the factored strings is a big part of the score. So how did you place it within your whole writing process? I think I had like unconsciously two approaches to this. I Either I would start with the fractured strings and develop the piece with that, or I would write a piece of music, like sort of the way I work is in the morning, I feel most creative and I write music. I would have like a piano sketch ready and the afternoon is sort of reserved for arranging and producing. That's just something I, I found for me that works. And if I wrote something, I would use the fractured orchestra to inject the frozen planet sound into that. So I would have a composition and then bring the fractured strings in to stay in, in character. You same sort of well. probably yeah. did the same, right? Yeah, as I said earlier, it became a home base that we always felt like very comfortable starting from. And it's a very um, diverse library, I would say. So you find some nasty sounds there and also beautiful stuff and minor and major and whatnot so because these shows they they long for like many different things you have action and comedy and tension and the beautiful aspect so you need a toolkit that kind of is capable of covering it all i think as well you know we didn't just use it straight out the box as well a lot of it was figuring out how can we break it yeah. how can we pitch shift it and slow it down and process it and keep the character of the sound, but manipulate it in a way that it works well for the scene, as opposed to just sort of pressing a key and letting it go. It's just something we rarely, <laughs> we rarely do. Even though there's a lot of sample libraries out there where you can press one key and it sounds great. You know, often I think the results are more, more interesting when you take that and really customize it and sculpt it. Mm. Yeah. And speaking of, uh, customizing and sculpting and all that sort of stuff. Is that a skill that you see composers need to kind of learn, like the ones who are up and coming? Are there skills that you think composers nowadays, like the younger ones who are starting out now, should be thinking about, should be learning to get into a position like you? Because I'm sure people are listening right now, like, oh my God, I want to do exactly what they're doing. What should they be thinking of? I don't know how much space there is in the industry for a pencil and manuscript paper. Yeah. <laughs> kind of pains me to say that in a way but you know I, I learned how to write music on on the computer i don't have a classical background some sometimes i wish i do but on, on a day-to-day -day basis the computer is what i use to generate demos for the client to listen to and so i think being able to produce a, a realistic convincing mock-up and being able to produce with of course, you have your orchestra and you have to produce that in its own sense, but also synthesizers and percussion and, and sound design and guitars and drums. I mean, there's so much that goes into a single frozen planet cue that's beyond just getting the notes down. I think this is really interesting because James, he truly is like some sort of, he cannot read music, but he's capable of writing the wildest things. So that's his approach. And Mine is, I studied music and I actually sat down, you know, what I would do is I, I would read along symphonies. Like I would read the score 
and I would only focus on the strings and then listen to Beethoven. And then I would only see what the woodwinds are doing, stuff like that. And both approaches work. So if you're out there, not sure what you should do, just kind of, you have to wing it, I guess. But something that is really important, there's almost like no excuse anymore for like a bad sounding mock-up. The tools are getting so good. What I often say is, if you want to make it in film music, you need to be good at three things, which is art, like the writing music, technology, and business. And you have to be somewhere in the middle of this triangle to make the career work. And yeah. I think sometimes people overlook the technical aspect and they're kind of wondering, why am I not winning any pitches? And the truth is, most clients don't have any imagination of how it would sound recorded. I cannot give a piano sketch to a director and say, this will be strings, by the way. They have no idea. And I think that's really important. We put in like 10,000 hours, probably. <laughs> that's probably on the low <laughs> side. <laughs> Maybe on the low side, but I think that's really important. And as basic it sounds, but you need to be curious of what your own sound could be. Like, I'm not saying find your own sound because I'm on the path to still find my sound, but at least be hungry. I, th I think if you, you know, try to be the next Hans, like Hans is there, he's alive. I think if, if people want Hans, they'll just call him, right? Or John Williams. So what can you bring to the table? It's a daunting question. It, it keeps me up at night sometimes. You mentioned something super important of art, technology, and business. And I feel like a lot of up-and-comers also ignore the business part. They think, oh, if I just get good, all the money will start flowing and everyone will notice me. But can you talk to how you two got noticed in the business side of this? Yeah, just because you're good, it doesn't mean that you'll have jobs. And that's very unfortunate because I wish all the people who are really good would have a lot of jobs. When you're writing music for, for film and TV, you're operating as a cog in a, in a much larger production team. And so there are skills that go beyond being able to just write good music. You've got to be able to work as a team. And you know, ultimately, you're, you're providing a service to the, the piece of art that the director is producing. And you've got to be able to work with them to execute their vision for the show or for the film as well. And so you know, there's, there's a plethora of social skills and ways to navigate those situations that are really important and i mean for me i learned them over time as well there are things that i look back on and, and yeah. regret doing and things that i can say safely that, that i made a good decision there but on, on the very basic side it's like you've got to have a great website right or like if someone asks you to play their music like you gotta have some music ready to go the, that's interesting because, yeah, like when you're talking to clients, directors, producers, whoever it may be, those social skills matter a, a ton to to keeping them, making them feel safe and heard and all that sort of stuff. Are you asking certain questions or are you avoiding certain topics or leaning into certain topics with your clients to make it so that they feel heard or that they know what uh, you know what their ideas are? Because sometimes, you know, you can't just say, oh, we'll use Sol Ponticello on the violin. They, they have no idea what that means. So how do you communicate with them to make sure that it feels like, OK, they get it. They know my ideas all as well. Emotions never lie, right? They're real. And if you send a piece of music and the feedback is it doesn't feel magical to me, but you think you personally think, well, it's quite magical. And then you have to manage your ego because if what you have produced and they have listened to, it doesn't evoke any sense of magicalness, 
then you need to go back and load up that glockenspiel or whatever, or try to avoid to do that and edit in a more original way. But it's really important in our job not to be offended by feedback or see feedback as something very normal and crucial. And I've had a lot of situations where the client feedback took my piece to the next level. And I was like, oh, I, mean, I didn't I would, think of that. I would even say, you know, client feedback has never made the end product worse. It's all in service of the story that's being told and the vision that the director has. You're not writing concert music. I think we sometimes have tunnel vision. We're focusing mm. on making the music sound good, whereas they have more bird's eye view, like how is the viewer viewing it? In? Yeah, that's really good. And just to rewind a bit as a more broad question, there are a lot of composers listening to this right now to you two who are doing amazing things, so, so cool and always working on great stuff, who are thinking, oh, God, I'm not in L.A., I'm not working with Hans Zimmer, I'm not on Frozen Planet 2, I'm screwed. I'll never make it. What do you say to those people who get those kind of thoughts in their head? Because I'm sure a lot of composers get start to worry, oh, is this for me? Am I cut out for this? What do you tell them? Wow, this is, this is a tough one. I, you know, I, I wish I had an answer for that because everyone's journey is different. And James, for example, you know, he, he was already pretty good with by age 14. And I wrote my first piece of music when I was like 19, something like that. We all have different starting points and we have different influences. But I think as a general rule, there's this work hard kind of thing. As a general rule, um, you know, there's this work hard kind of thing that is true. I, I would say study hard, work smart. In your early stage of your career, you need to make decisions which projects are worth it. Which projects do I want to invest time in? I also want to say that I, th I think I want to be careful how I word this because I think the internet offers incredible resources. This podcast is one of them. And, you know, it's so great to be able to talk and, you know, to offer what maybe is inspiration to one person. But there's also a lot of noise on the internet. And I think you maybe agree that I see a lot of composers that are doing a lot of interneting and not as much composing. And there's a, a lot online that can discourage and that can maybe hmm. say, oh, you know, in order to make it, you got to do this. And it's not always true. You know, I, I think most important thing you can do, really, whatever stage of your career you're at, is just to sit down and write a piece of music that feels genuine to you. Not to go on a forum and, you know, how did you, what did you have to write to get the gig or whatever? No, it's just, it might not be James Bond, right? But if you have a laptop and a keyboard or just a microphone and a piano or a microphone and your voice or, or whatever, just come up with something that feels genuine and put it out there, make it accessible with earnest. And I think that you just let the music speak for itself to a certain degree. Yeah, I like that. I like that. And I know, uh, like James, especially, you started pretty young, but for both of you, were there ever moments where you were thinking, I don't know if this music thing is for me? Did that ever come up? Definitely. I mean, it still it comes up on a daily basis for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's very normal and human to evaluate our situation. Sometimes you just have to do things that feel like a little pain, but you do it. I Something that I learned, and I hope it doesn't sound discouraging, that being a film composer like 10 years ago for me was this big dream. And you know how the dreams are always very beautiful, right? 
in a dream your music gets performed and you have a lot of credits and you know that's the dream and then i think i'm getting to a point where i wake up in this dream and i i see there's deliveries there's deadlines there's work life balance there's no weekends there's so much stuff there's constant self critique the more your audience grows it it can be daunting as well so i still feel like i live the dream and i music is the one thing in life that I was very lucky to find that makes me feel alive. I'm not overstating this. I really am thinking a lot about it. It's my job. It's my calling, so, so to speak. And I want to maintain this good relationship with music. And I want it to keep being a dream while also manage the yeah. practicality of it. I feel the same. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, that makes sense. And kind of a, a question to, as we get to the end here is, are you too focused on learning? something right now? Like, what are you focused on learning right now? Is it, whether it be musical or completely outside of the world of music, is there something you're studying? It's actually worth mentioning that co-composing a project with, with other people is much of a learning process as it is a sort of collaborative, creative process. I mean, you were talking earlier about your start and your musical education and your approach to writing a cue starts with a piano sketch. I approach writing a cue in a completely different way thinking about it from a sound perspective, and I produce every bar 100% right before I move forwards, as opposed to doing a sketch and then going back over the arrangement. So getting to spend a lot of time with you and Hans and watching how you do things in a different way to how I do it is always inspiring for me to rethink my approach and watch things that you guys do that I would never think of doing yeah. and then attempt those ways of doing things myself. And what is my spin on that is something that is just great about a collaborative environment like Bleeding Fingers. It's an interesting timing that you asked me this question. I Last night, I didn't quite know what to do with my evening. And I realized, when was the last time like I, I've watched some mixed with the masters or something. I, I used to do that to learn a lot. But then if you're working the job, if you're working on like Frozen Planet, you know, I, I won't go home and watch mixing tutorials, right? But I logged in yesterday and I watched a guy mixing a rock song by The Strokes, you know, something that I would never do. And I realized I still know nothing. Or there's so many things that you still can learn and, and dig into. So that was a good experience i just watched for like two hours and tried to make sense of what this guy is doing on the console because i'm i'm much of a like an in in the box guy i think you need to be in the right mindset of being ready to learn something new and mm. exposing yourself to like new scores new people's music i think that's always good and keeping an open mind as you know for for me and i know for you as well we don't really listen to film music as much as we listen to classical music and pop music and listening to that music and working, thinking of ways that those influences can affect our film music <laughs> in, in a weird way, right? Yeah. So second to last question, as we start to wrap up, uh, we'll start with you, James, for this one. When you were first starting out, and that could be defined as any point, it could be when you first picked up an instrument, it could be when you first performed your first piece, wherever starting point you want to define how do you define success? And how has that changed over time? And what is that definition now? We'll do James and then Adam. I remember like at the very start of my career, I had finished school and my parents were gracious enough to let me 
compose in the bedroom very loudly for a few years before I was able to move here to LA. And I always told myself at the time, success to me is when I look at my bank account and I'm making a living from writing music. I've achieved that now. And so for me, that's it. <laughs> like, that's success for me. I make a living yeah. doing what I love doing. It's not a job. I get to just come to the studio and write music. And that's never going to change. I'm never going to take that for granted. So for me, just being able to afford an apartment and, and a studio and, and to have that privilege is really my definition of success. Yeah. When I started, everything I did sounded absolutely bad. And I, I didn't have fun doing music for the first two or three years of me making music. And I occasionally I had like breakthroughs when I, you know, found out how to actually work with an equalizer. I had these little steps, but the first big success was that I was able to have something in my head and put it in a computer and have it represent what I thought of creating. Because if, if you take a paintbrush and you want to paint a letter A in a red color, I have it in my head and I can execute it. And with music, I feel like it, there's a black box. So it, it was a big success for me to actually create what I want to create. And then I think later, it, I think I, I can just echo what James said. It's that a hobby or a dream becomes a paying job. And that that was another big milestone because we, I think we, many of us have a plan B and you can always work this other job. And I'm in the fortunate position right now that I still can do music and hopefully we'll be able to do that for much longer. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Last question for both of you. Uh, where can people find you? Websites, all that stuff, Bleeding Fingers, Frozen Planet soundtracks, plug it all. Yeah. Frozen Planet 2 soundtrack is out now with Silver Screen Records. So that's on Spotify, Apple Music, all the normal places featuring the wonderful Aurora. And I'm on social media, just at James Everingham everywhere, I believe. I, I'm on Facebook. I don't run a page, but I have like a, a personal account that I run, Adam Lucas. And on Instagram, I'm at Adam Lucas Music. There's someone who claims the Adam Lucas handle. <laughs> this person has two followers, zero <laughs> posts. So get in touch if you're that person. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to like get the handle, but it's no success so far. It's Adam Lucas Music. And I think on Twitter, I don't use Twitter so much, but if you probably type in Adam Lucas, it, might pop up, yeah. And we are we both have profiles on on the bleedingfingersmusic.com website as well, where we have like sound examples and also no personal web pages and stuff like that. Awesome. Beautiful. Thank you two so much for taking the time today. Thank well, you. Thank that you. was Thanks fun. For having yeah. us. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash soundbizpod. Sound, B-I-Z, pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game, music, and sound. Thanks so much, 
I'll see you next time. And if you're looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to, this podcast is actually a part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. So if you want to check those out, hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.